Production. Recorded live. <clears throat> hey, it's Mike. Little religion dystopia. Got it right this time. Um, yeah. All right. We can get back into the reading of this interesting book by Emmett Scott. Guide to the Phantom Dark Age. Dark Age. Origin and Development of the Dark Age Idea. The term Dark Age or Dark Period, in quotes, was first introduced into the nomenclature of historians during the 14th century by the Italian scholar, patriarch, um, the term was not originally prerogative, but reflected merely the fact <clears throat> that little was known of the European history of the centuries that fall, the, uh, the centuries between the fall of the Western Empire and event normally dated 478, excuse me, 476, 476, huh? The beginning of the 11th century, it seems that few great monuments were built after the fall of Rome, though the castles and cathedrals raised by the European princes from the 11th century onwards still adorned the landscape of the continent. These latter men presided over a real civilization, though it seemed to be a civilization of somewhat inferior kind to that which has flourished under the Caesars. That, at least, was the general opinion in Europe by the time of the Renaissance. The philosophers they read and admired tend to be those of Greek and Rome, and the Renaissance was a period which self-consciously sought to revive the glories of the classical age. With the advent of the Reformation in the 16th century, the term, quote, dark age, and a quote, began to take an distinctly negative connotations. Protestant writers from the 17th century onwards would increasingly view everything between Constantine and the Reformation as a long and tedious epic of barbarism and ignorance. And the same process was to continue during and after the Enlightenment, when men such as Voltaire and Kant saw the whole of what we now call the Middle Ages as a period of faith and thus the opposite of Enlightenment. By the 19th century, however, it had become increasingly evident that it was impossible 
to classify everything between the end of the Western Empire and the Renaissance as the Dark Age. For one thing, it was found that Roman civilization did not come to an end in 476, not even in the West. The barbarian princes who had taken control of the Western provinces in the 5th century were not the mindless destroyers it had once been believed. On the contrary, they adopted Roman civilization as quickly as they could and did everything in their power to uphold Roman institutions and customs which we still do today, by the way. They also continued, by and large, to regard themselves as functionaries of the empire, and minted gold coins emblazoned with the image of the emperor in Constantinople. From, From him, they accepted Roman titles and names and proudly displayed these on their monuments. They continued to build monuments in the Roman style. These chiefly comprised luxurious, luxurious, luxurious churches, but also included impressive secular buildings. The Frankish king of Gaul, Chilperic, uh, it's C-H-I-L-P-E-R-I-C, so I'm going to call it Shell Perk. The first, 561-584, was said, for example, to have built two amphitheaters, one in Paris and another one in, uh, okay, it's S-O-I-S-S-O-N-S. So I'm going to say Soissons, but I'm sure I'm pronouncing it wrong. Oh, by the way, just for curiosity, Pope Francis, as he likes to call himself, the Pontifus Maximus of our day, says 66 years is this will be the 66th year, or potentially, of the end of any kind of, or the conflict between the Catholic Church and China. Of course, 66 is a very occult number. Unfortunately, we find in the Old Testament, in New Testament, 66 books. So, there we go. <clears throat> Got to have your symbolism. On the other hand, on the scale, the period we now call the High Middle Ages, from the 11th order even late 10th century onwards, could no longer, in the light of archaeological and other research, be considered period of a dark age. The great cathedrals and castles of this time, which still stand in all their glory throughout Europe, revealed an advanced and, in some ways, astonishing civilization. It was recognized, for example, that the Middle Age, the medieval cathedrals represented 
an advancement on Roman architecture. And it was considered that the Romans would have been incapable of building such structures. Indeed, in many areas of technology, the Middle Ages were more advanced and sophisticated than classical Rome. And we need only cite the enormous list of technologies of technologies employed by the people of the Middle Europe or Medieval Europe which were unknown to the Romans. These included the windmill, paper, the plow collar, the stirrup, horseshoes, new musical instruments such as the violin and bagpipe, Arabic numerals, algebra, distillation, distillation of alcohol, double and triple sailing masses on ships for tracking into the wind, etc., all by the 11th century. And these were followed in the 12th and to 15th centuries by medical by mechanical clocks, magnifying lenses, and a whole gamut of archaeological innovations, as well as such epic-making innovations as gunpowder and firearms, printing, etc. In addition to this, it was found that the medieval scientific knowledge was not nearly so mired in superstition and ignorance as has had once been believed. That in many areas of knowledge, the Middle Ages were, uh, were the equal, if not superior, of classical antiquity. Such great figures of the 13th century as Roger Bacon and Albertus Magnus made advances in mathematics, experimented on experimented with light and the nature and properties of chemicals and theorized on the size of the solar system. <clears throat> Which I don't believe in, by the way. <clears throat> Not anymore. After all my research, it's just solar. The, the, the solar system that we all believe in is still a theory, folks. It hasn't been proven yet. So everything as far as the late 6th to early 7th century was eventually redesignated late antiquity, whilst everything from the 11th or even 10th century onwards was redesignated simply as the Middle Ages. And by early 12th century, the term, quote, Dark Ages, end of quote, had become generally confined to the period between the mid-7th and mid-10th centuries, a span of time which remained little known from which very few archaeological structures seem to have survived. 
This was a period during which the Vikings were said to have rampaged around the continent, burning and looting and killing. Even documents of the time were few and far between, and what did exist seemed to imbue the period with a mythical or semi-mythical aura. The image was conveyed for a of a continent that had sunk into a primitive level of existence with literature and the other civilized arts all but disappearing. The Anglo-Saxons, it was said, had even lost the art of pottery making during these centuries. And the start they had made along the path of civilization in the late 6th century when Augustine had landed in Kent and the church building had commenced throughout England had gone abruptly into reverse. After a flurry of church building in the early 7th century, the whole process was abandoned and no new Anglo-Saxon churches appeared until the third or fourth decade of the 10th century. Indeed, the process of archaeology throughout the 12th century seemed to show just how appropriate the term Dark Age was for this period, as the archaeological exploration of Europe was extended in the middle decades of the 12th, not the 12th, the 20th century, scholars were astonished by the lack of finds. It began to appear that not only had civilization gone into reverse, but almost all signs of human life and existence had gone away entirely. Sight after sight could produce nothing from the three Dark Age centuries, though a settlement might produce abundant remains for the centuries preceding and following them. How was the strange state of affairs to be explained? On the whole, it was generally concluded that the Germanic kings of the West, whilst immediately making attempts to keep Roman civilization alive, finally reverted to type, as it were, and eventually set the great cities and monuments of Caesar's fall into decay. This was the opinion, for example, of Alphonse Dopes. Dopes. I guess what it is, is D-O-P-S-C-H. I have no idea, but it's going to say Dopsch. Who, along with Henry Perini, Perini, was one of the first historians of the last century to emphasize the continuity the continuity between the civilization 
of Imperial Rome and the Germanic kingdoms, which replaced it in the West. It was true, said Dokes, that the, quote, barbarians, and the quote, did indeed try to live like Romans at the start. For a while, they actually succeeded. And the Frankish and Vandals and Gothic kings presided over Roman-style cities and economies. Yet these did not last, and by the early seventh century, all had gone to work and ruin, all to wreck and ruin. That was one opinion. It is an opinion still echoed in the highest ranks of academia. There was another theory about the Dark Age, which gained some prominence up for the time. This was that of Dos, contemporary Henry Perrine. According to the latter, the decline of the late classical culture was swift and dramatic and had nothing to do with, quote, barbarian and, quote, nature of the Germanic people. For Perrine, the key lay in the timetable of events. Ample proof of thriving Roman-style cities and economies could be found until the first quarter of the 7th century. After that, they disappeared rapidly and completely. Above all, Perrine found that the most of the luxury products which the West had habitually imported from the East disappeared at this time. This was especially the case with papyrus and the indispensable writing material so essential for the smooth running of an urban and mechanical culture such as the Roman. All other Eastern products, most deriving like papyrus from the Levitine countries, disappeared at the same time. What thought Perini could have terminated the Mediterranean trade so completely and rapidly? The fact that it seemed to occur in the early to the mid-7th century left only one possible answer, the Arabs. Perini's major thesis published uh, posthumously in 1937, Muhammad et Charlemagne, or Muhammad and Charlemagne, which, by the way, in uh, my old show or recording, or I don't even know, you know, old cold series, oh, nothing but the truth, I read in its entirety on the show, if you're interested. Caused something of a stir, mainly because it went so decisively against the tide of the current academic thought. For several decades prior to the date, historians had increasingly come to see the Arabs as the saviors of late classical civilization. They were viewed as arriving on the shores of a dark and primitive Europe in the middle years of the 7th century. They brought with them, so it seemed, an advanced, tolerant, and urbane 
caused her, and they began to they began the process of reacquainting the barbarous Europeans with the lost learnings of the Greeks and the Romans. Perini's argument went contrary to this view, and as such, were treated with suspicion. Nonetheless, as an explanation for the Dark Age, it won several influential supporters, and many eventually had become the, and may have eventually become the dominant paradigm that it not paradigm it had not been for for the fact that it had several drawbacks first of all the good points <clears throat> there was no question that the arabs did a good deal of damage in the middle east and north africa large areas of the latter regions with which had previously supported supported an intensive and productive agriculture was reduced to desert in the aftermath of the Arab conquests, due primarily to the pernicious custom of invaders allowing their flocks of camels and goats to graze on cropland. This led to the rapid abandonment of the great Roman cities of the region, which these fields had once supported. The stark skeletal remains of these metropolises still dot landscapes in the, of the Middle East and North Africa, and they stand as eloquent testimony to the terrors brought by the Saracens Saracen, the Saracens and the seventh century. There was no question to that the arrival of the Arabs had an immense impact on Europe. Their pirate raids are well documented, documented and proved by archaeology, and there seems little doubt that the abandonment of Roman patrons of settlements, unprotected villas in lowland areas, and the retreat to defended hilltops, strongholds throughout the Mediterranean Europe during the 7th century was a direct response to the threat posed by Arab corsairs Corsairs and slave traders. I'm sorry if I'm not pronouncing that right. Corsairs, corsairs and, and slave traders. The Europe's that Europe that Europe's econo- economy must have suffered in other ways is also evident. Not normal trade. No, excuse me. No normal trade could be conducted along the Mediterranean routes so long as these were being scored by Arab pirates, cities and towns, particularly ports such as Marseilles, which depended upon the Mediterranean trade. 
must have suffered. Furthermore, the Arab conquest of Spain and Sicily, together with major armed raids deep into Gaul and Italy, can only have caused a good degree of destruction and a certain amount of depopulation. All this is a given, and yet destructive though the Arabs may have been, they could not explain the evidence which archaeology was beginning to uncover as the 20th century progressed. Neither the Arabs nor anyone else could entirely and completely depopulate a continent for three centuries and not even they could then cause the same continent to be repopulated three centuries later in precisely the same towns and settlements by communities employing precisely the same tools, ornaments, and religious symbols. For that is what the archaeologists, much to their astonishment, began to find. Even worse, the complete depopulation and disappearance of the settled life manifested itself also in those areas of the Middle East and North African or North Africa conquered by the Arabs themselves. Admitting the destruction of the Arabs wrought in the latter territories not even they could have removed virtually all signs of human existence for a space of three centuries. North Africa, for example, in the aftermath of the Arab conquest, is admitted to have endured a dark age, which did not end till the start of the 10th century, when Quote, new settlements, and the quote, erected by the Arabs began to appear. Archaeologists face a similar problem in Spain. They too, there too, the Arabs undoubtedly wrought much destruction, and the ruins of burned Visigothic towns and churches are regularly encountered. Yet, there too, Yet here, too, they're followed by complete abandonment and disappearance of all signs of life. Roger Collins, in his archaeological guide to Spain, could find only 11 structures in the whole peninsula dating between the Arab conquest of 711 to 911. Keep that in mind, 9-11, huh? The majority of these are of doubtful providence, 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 and their providence. Doubtful providence, and there is extremely good evidence to suggest that some at least belong to belong in a later epic. Contrast this with the hundreds of buildings listed by Collins of the Visigoth Age, a period of time comparable 
to the first two centuries of the Arab occupation, real and substantial Arab archaeology only appears in Spain as in North Africa in the mid-10th century. That it is the same throughout the Middle East in all territories west of the Euphrates. Typically, we find extremely rich archaeology of the late Byzantine world, followed by a small handful of early Arabic finds, usually from the mid-7th century, then a complete absence of all archaeology until the earlier mid-10th century. As in Europe, the, quote, new and, quote, settlements of the 10th century tend, however, to be built directly upon the old settlements of the 7th and to possess a material culture, culture strikingly similar to that of the 7th century. It is inevitable. Let me just reread that last sentence. As in Europe, the new settlements of the 10th century tend, however, to be built directly upon the old settlements of the 7th and to possess a material culture strikingly similar to that of the 7th. Okay. It is inevitable that facts such as these would eventually elicit radical solutions. The first of these first moted in the early 20th century was that of climate change or natural disaster. Several important authorities have early, earlier proposed a radical deterioration of the climate as an explanation for the, disfor- dis- the desertification of much of the Middle East in the 7th century and the silting up of great harbors such as the Euphrates. Notwithstanding the fact that the contemporary Middle East had the same flora and fauna as the ancient and medieval, it was argued that some formed form of catastrophic change must have occurred to reduce such vast areas of desert in such a short time. But whilst the reduction of rainfall might conceivably have reduced large areas of the Middle East and North Africa to desert, what then was to blame for the depopulation of Europe at the same time? There is no question of the of Europe ever having been a desert or anything remotely resembling one. Such consideration led inevitably to ever more radical conclusions. It was theorized by one school of thought that a pandemic or ep- of epic proportions might have 
decimated the populations of Europe and the Middle East simultaneously, leaving only impoverished remnants in both areas. Another school is more recent time of more in more recent times has gone even further and proposed some from some form of comet or asteroid catastrophe as an example. This latter idea might seem utterly fantastic, but it has to be admitted that given the totality of the population crash while in the 7th, 8th, 9th, and early 10th century seems to have witnessed to be arguably the more likely solution. What caused the fall of Rome? In view of such chaotic and apparent contradictory evidence, it is perhaps necessary to look again at the whole question of Rome's decline and fall. This is surely central to the whole Dark Ages question. Theories about the fall of Rome have, of course, been thick on the ground for many centuries. As we saw above, the, quote, traditional view that it had been caused by the violence of the invading barbarians in the 5th century was seriously undermined by the application of new and more stringent methods of historical inquiry during the 19th century. Indeed, by the first decades of the 12th century, it had become apparent that as an imperial power, Rome was already in a fairly advanced state of decay by the end of the second century, over 200 years before the official end of the empire in 476. Historians began to speak of the crisis at the time, and they noted a contradiction of the Roman power in the third century. The loss and abandonment of several provinces, beginning with Decia and part of Germany. They noted, too, the general shrinking of cities and the secession of construction on a monumental scale. All the great structures which to this day dot Europe and elicit the admiration and astonishment of the tourists and the aqueducts and the amphitheaters and the city walls were raised before the beginning of the third century. After that, there was almost nothing. More and more historians began to discern, quote, a fundamental structural change, end quote, at this time, quote, which the great emperors at the end of that century and Constantine himself the beginning of the next, did not stabilize, end quote. A new census developed, or consensus developed, according to which there were, quote, two successive Roman empires. First, there is the Roman Empire of Augustus and the Antonin, Antonians, 
of which we mainly think the majestic web of planned cities and straight roads, all leading to Rome. Secondly, after the anarchy of the third century, there is the, quote, lower empire, end quote, the rural, the rural military empire of Diocletian and Constantine, Constantine of Julian the Apostate and Theodosius the Great. This was an empire always on defensive, on the defensive, whose capital was not Rome, but wherever warring emperors kept their military headquarters. In the Rhineland behind the Alps, or in the east, in Nicomedia, Media, or Nice, 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 or Media, and I think that's how I pronounce it, or Constantinople, in uh, Tyre, Milan, or Milan, and Ravenna. The Roman Empire, it thus became clear, was already in an an advanced state of decay by the year 200. It was also increasingly less Roman, in quotes. We hear that, quote, already before the age of the Antonians in the second century, it had been discovered that Tacitus, Tacitus, yeah, remarked that the emperors could be made elsewhere than in Rome. And as the above writer directly remarked, quote, by the third century AD, they were generally made elsewhere, end quote. And that century, we know, quote, there were not only military emperors from the frontier, there was also Syrian, African, and half-barbarian emperors, and they and their visits to Rome became rarer and rarer, end of quote. In the event of the, quote, half-barbarian, end of quote, emperors was paralleled by the increasingly half or fully barbarian army. From the third and even second centuries, historians noted their recruitment into the Roman legions not only of great numbers of, quote, semi-barbarians, such as the Gauls and the Illyrians, but of actual barbarians, such as German and Sarmatians. Sarmatians, so Germans and Sarmatians. Indeed, so far had this custom gone by the fourth century that by the end, by then, several distinguished Roman families boasted of barbarian ancestors many generations earlier. The crisis of the third century naturally became the subject of intense debate amongst historians. Nowadays, it is often regarded as having an economic origin, and scholars talk having an economic origin, and scholars talk of 
inflationary pressures and such like. This may be partly true, but it seems undeniable that the real problem lay deeper. There is now little dissension on the belief that by the year 150, the population of the empire had ceased to grow and had begun to contract. The inability to hold the most outlying of the provinces in Decia and Germany is viewed as an infallible sign of general shrinkage. And archaeology had provided solid evidence by around 400, the great majority of the empire's towns and cities occupied less than half the space they did in 150. There are also clear signs of a marked decline in rural populations. Excavations of southern Etruria and elsewhere in Italy have shown a fairly dramatic fall in rural populations from the end of the second century through the fifth, through to the fifth. From the same period, archaeologists have noted not only the cessation of major new buildings, but also of the demolition and recycling of existing monuments. There appears also in the urban settlements of the temperate Europe a layer of dark humic soil, sometimes more than a meter thick, containing cultural debris, pottery, bones uh, of butchered animals, glass fragments, etc., mixed in together, covering occupational remains of earlier centuries. Quote, the dark earth, end quote, says one historian, quote, has been found to contain remains of timber-framed wallops and dubbed huts. Let me see if you say this again. Waddled and uh, I guess that's what you say. Waddled and waddled and dubbed, dubbed huts, along with shards of pottery and metal ornaments dating back to the late Roman period. These observations demonstrate that the population who were living on the site were building their houses in traditional British and North European style rather than in the stone and cement fashion of elite and public Roman architecture, end quote. They, excuse me, what are we to make of these two major changes reflected in the archaeology. That was a quote as well. The same writer asks, he concludes that, quote, after a rapid growth in the latter period of the first century, there was a stoppage in major public architecture and a reverse of that process 
and the dismantling of major stone monuments at the same time that much of the formerly urban area seems to have reverted to a non-urban to a non-urban character in the quote what could have caused such a dramatic sustained demographic collapse as might be expected abortion <laughs> i just had that in there i'm sorry think about it. writers of the various hues have not been slow to propose answers these range from the possible to the bizarre the best explanations however have kept an eye both on archaeology and on the written sources and what has emerged over the past 50 years is a picture of a roman empire unfamiliar to most students of classical civilization it is picture it is a picture of a world immersed in decadence squalor and brutality life in a roman city it seems was anything but comfortable the image of the good life of centrally centrally heated villas with mosaic floors and marble pillars the image generally presented to the public in guidebooks and documentaries was of course far from typical much new research has been done on the living conditions of ordinary romans in the last 50 years and what has emerged is a picture of a life of almost unimaginable squalor the cities by modern standards were packed people lived in appalling confined spaces in rome the great majority of the poor inhabitants multi-story apartment blocks named in so insolas or insoles and which means islands which were little more than multi-story slums they were also death traps several roman writers noted that the more the most frequently heard sound in the city was the roar of collapsing insolas or insolas or insoles they were constructed of the cheaper material and their occupants rarely had any warning of their impending disintegration the streets around these insoles contain a central canal into which the inhabitants threw their sewage. The whole city stank summer and winter, and so great was the stench that even the rich in their exclusive areas could not avoid contact with it. Hence the annual retreatment or excuse me, retreat to the springtime. Let me try this. Hence, the annual retreat in the springtime to their summer residences in the countryside. As might be imagined, 
deadly ep- epidemics were commonplace and the failure of the ancients to understand the pathology and spread of infection led to a plethora of pandemics which wiped out millions. This is what the, from, they used that same strategy to wipe out millions in Central, South, and North America, didn't they? And other places. Crime, too, was of epidemic proportions and a society which exacted the death penalty for minor offenses offered no real deterrent against more serious crimes such as murder. The sheer savagery of Roman attitudes is, of course, already well known, and we need not labor the obvious fact that people who could watch other human beings being torn to shreds by wild beasts for, quote, entertainment, quote, were of a very low spiritual state. The institutions of slavery, by its very existence, had a corrupting effect of attitudes, and slaves, as the property of their owners, could be exploited in whichever way their owners wished. All of them, both male and female, were the sexual playthings of their masters, and most submit to the sexual demands of their owners at any time or place. The sex, quote, industry, end quote, was a major employer, as excavations at Pompeii and Herculaneum Herculaneum, and numerous other ancient cities have revealed only too graphically. As might be imagined, a society which harbored such attitudes did not shrink from taking drastic measures to deal with the unwanted issue of casual liaisons. The practice of infanticide was widespread. Infanticide, okay, the killing of infants, right? And commonplace in in the classical world. Official Roman documents and texts of every kind from as early as the first century stressed again and again the pernicious consequences of Romans' low and apparently declining birth rate Attempts by the Emperor Augustus to reverse the situation were apparently unsuccessful. For a hundred years later, Tacitus remarked that in spite of everything, quote, child, childlessness prevailed, end of quote. Whilst towards the beginning of the second century, uh, Pliny the Younger said that he lived, quote, in an age when even one child is thought a burden preventing the rewards of childlessness in the globe. Around the same time, Plutarch noted that the poor did not bring up their children for fear that without an appropriate upbringing, they would grow up badly. And by the middle of the second century, Heracles 
claimed that, quote, most people in the quote seemed to decline, decline to raise their children for a not very lofty reason, but for love of wealth and the belief that poverty is a terrible evil. Efforts were made to discourage the practice, but apparently without success, the birth rate remained stubbornly low and the overall population of the empire continued to decline. A major and exacerbating factor in the latter was the fact that baby girls seemed to have been particularly unwanted. A notorious letter dated from the first century BC contains an instruction from a husband to his wife to kill their newborn child if it turns out to be a girl. Quote, I am still in Alexandria. I beg and plead with you to take care of our little child. As soon as we receive wages, I will send them to you. In the meantime, if good fortune to you, you give birth. If it is a boy, let it live. If it is a girl, expose it. Although it may be tempting to dismiss this letter and as anecdotal, the very casualness of the writer's attitude shows that what he was saying was not in any way regarded as unusual or immoral. In such circumstances, we cannot doubt that girls were especially selected for termination. And since the propagation of populations is fundamentally related to the number of females, such a custom can only have led to a devastating effect on demographics. In addition to infanticide, of the Romans also practice very effective forms of birth control. Abortion, too, was commonplace and caused the death of large numbers of women, as well as infertility and a great many others. And it has become increasingly evident that the city of Rome never, at any stage in her history, had a self-sustaining population. Numbers had constant, continuously, had continuously to be replenished by new arrivals from the countryside. And his trenchant study of Roman social history during these centuries, sociologist Rodney Stark wondered how the empire survived as long as it did and came to the conclusion that it did so only through the continual importation of barbarians and semi-barbarians. Further than from being a threat, the barbarians were seen as a means by which Rome might make good manpower shortages. The problem was that no sooner had the latter settled within the imperial frontiers than they adopted Roman attitudes and vices. 
quite possibly by the end of the first century, the only groups in the empire that were increasing by any normal demographic process were the Christians and the Jews. And these two were virtually immune from the contagion of Roman attitudes. Taking this into account, several writers over the past few decades have suggested that the Romans adopted the Christianity in the 4th century may have had as one of its major goals the halting of the empire's population decline. Christians had large families and were noted for their rejection of infanticide. In legalizing Christianity, therefore, Constantine had had, may have hoped to reverse the population trend. He was also, to some degree, simply recognizing the inevitable. By the late 3rd century, Christians were already a majority in certain areas of the East, and most notably in parts of Syria and Asia Minor, and were apparently the only group apart from the Jews, registering an increase in many other areas. This was, this was achieved both by conversion and by simple demographics. The Jews, too, by that time formed a significant element in the empire's population, and for the same reason. They, like their Christian cousins, abhorred the practice of infanticide and abortion. It has been estimated that there, that by the start of the 4th century, Jews formed up to one-tenth of the empire's entire population. Whether or not Constantine legalized Christianity, therefore, it would, be, it would appear that in time the empire would have become Christian in any, in any case. The question for historians was, did Constantine's surmise and gamble prove correct? Did the Christianization of the empire halt the decline? On the face of it, the answer seems to be no. After all, less than a century later, Rome herself was sacked, first by the Goths, and then several decades later by the Vandals, and by 476, the Western Empire was officially dissolved. The general consensus then, from some time, for some time, has been that Christianity somehow failed to halt the demographic collapse of the West, though it is admitted that it most certainly did halt in the East. However, by the later years of the 19th century, more and more evidence began to emerge, much of it from archaeology, which seems to suggest that Rome, Roman civilization did indeed experience some form of revival in the West during the 5th or at least 6th century. Indeed, it became increasingly clear that much more of the heritage of Rome survived than hitherto been imagined, and that Roman civilization flourished by the 
both in the East and in the West during the 6th century. It has always been well known that the classical or Greco-Roman civilization did not die in the East. And the territories which would have become, as we call it, the Byzantine Empire. This was evident from the written history and has always been accepted. However, with the age of archaeology, a whole new body of evidence provides to provided its own irrefutable confirmation. Not only did classical civilization fail to die in the eastern provinces, it experienced a remarkable revival there during the 5th and 6th century. In Anatolia, in Anatolia, Syria, Palestine, Egypt, and in North Africa, the 5th and 6th centuries, saw an expansion of manufacture and trade and a remarkable, remarkable growth of the cities and rural settlements. The historians are now happy to talk of a flourishing and wealthy late classical civilization in the East well into the early 7th century. In the words of one prominent authority, Quote, archaeological evidence offers striking confirmation of the wealth of the church and society at large from the 4th to the 6th century. All around the Mediterranean, basilicas have been found, have been found by, by the scores. While archaeologically standardized, these were quite large buildings often a hundred feet or more in length and were lavishly decorated with imported marble columns, carvings, and mosaics. In every town, more and more churches were built. And the quote, the writer quoted above continues, quote, more and more churches were built until about the middle of the sixth century when this activity slackened and then ceased entirely, end of quote. These words were written 30 years ago, and since then it has become apparent that there was very little sla slacking of building activity after the mid-6th century. New and sometimes magnificent structures continued to be raised throughout the Byzantine lands until the first quarter of the 7th century, after which the activity did apparently cease entirely. The opulence of the late classical cities has astonished the excavators in Ephesus. For example, during the 5th century, quote, many parts of the classical city were being rebuilt, and all the signs point to an immense merchantile wealth as late as 600. The best examples of the late flourish flowering have been found in excavations alongside the embolos, the monumental streets in the center of Ephesus where crowded dwellings had been uncovered Nearly all of them were lavishly decorated in the 5th and early 6th century 
and their courtyards were floored with marble or mosaics. Again, quote, the sheer, as in that quote, new quote, again, the sheer grandeur of the 5th and 6th centuries in Ephesus can be seen in the remains of the great Justinianic Justinianic Church of St. John in architectural and artistic terms, the chronicles, the chronicles, I can't say it. The term chronicles, chroniclers, gosh darn it. Okay, the artistic terms and archaeological and artistic terms, the chroniclers, led us to believe St. John was close to Sancta Sophia and San Vitel and Magnificence. His floor was covered with elaborately cut marble, and among the many paintings was one depicting Christ crowning Justinian and Theodora. No less remarkable are many mausolas, mausolas and chapels of the period centered around the Grotto of the Seven Sleepers. These early Christian funeraries, I guess I should say it, funeraries, I guess is what it is, Christian funeraries remains testify the wealth of its citizens and depth, complementing their lavishly decorated homes by the embolos. I wonder how much. Uh, uh, uh. Two is going to be a long one. And I'm thinking. This would probably be a good place to start out, because that's where I feel like stopping. Because I'm starting to struggle with it. Anyways, interesting so far. Um, I hope you can start to see the the picture being painted through through new technologies and and archaeological evidence that the quote-unquote dark ages uh, were fabrication. And as we go along, obviously, the hope will be that we'll start to get an answer to why that is. And why that was and why it is maintained. How important is it to you? Mm, I don't know. Anyways, uh, tomorrow, uh, hopefully M.K. Davis uh, and I will do a show. And uh, hopefully we'll be joined by uh, Brian Sullivan, a.k.a. Duke who I interviewed or had a conversation with on Sunday. So that should be very interesting, talking to him about um, uh, exo, or excuse me, exo, cryptozoology. So, And uh, I think this is an important issue here, too, because um, it's clearly, as you as we go on reading this, that um, it is not 2017, and it's emblematic and... To and for us, uh, for what we're going through uh, as a society and a culture, some of the problems of not maintaining 
uh, moral integrity and valuing life. Uh, what well, we, you know, we'll practice infanticide or infanticide our own way through abortion and all that. That our own population is not growing, and um, etc. That's one big issue, right, in, in, of itself. But also the fact that they just basically made up 300 years. And it does have something, once again, to do with religion. And we'll find out all about it. Or well, the religion was the excuse, I should say, for it. It was more about political power and, you know, the, the warring parties that were involved, which, once again, were the Arabs and the ruling elite on the Western and Eastern Empire. All right. Well, you know what I say? When you're done, we've had enough, you've had enough. I think an hour is more than enough, especially just reading. It's a lot of information to take in. But I want to read this book, although it's not a very long book. It's got the. I, I really want to help folks to realize that the, the degree, the degree of dece- the deception that we're all under, and uh, that we need to question everything, even what year we live in. So, all right, take care. <laughs>